This is the good, the Baz, and the ugly. I'm the Baz. Well, that no, I'm Baz. That sounds weird if I were going around calling myself the Baz. Anyway, uh, look, this podcast is filled with uncensored interviews with experts in particular fields or real-life stories from people who have inspiring personal tales to tell. It covers various topics and life stories that I've really dug, you know what I mean? And I think you'll dig them too. Just so you know, this podcast is for grown-ups. It may contain adult themes, sexual references, and strong language. Fuck yeah! No, I just wanted to. Sheet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. Hold it now, wait, hold it. I know you're gonna dig this. I think the best thing for me to do is to introduce him. What the... What's his name? Baz Ashwami. It's not Baz Ashwami. It's Baz Ashmawi. Welcome to the good, the Baz and the ugly. This is, of course, episode eight. Oh, you know, it's on your own. See, don't even need you fuckers. <laughs> like, like episode eight, the finale. This is the end of season one, right? Is it? Yeah, I think so. I think this is, this is it. This is, this is it. I'm not crying. You're crying. You're crying. You're crying. See, it's all. This one's all about vulnerability and how important that is. I'm. I'm very lucky. I have. I've my best friend since I was since I was a kid. Are you like that, John? John? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I think what it is is, I, I've held on to those relationships because those people truly kind of know me. Do you know what I mean? They knew me before I was cool. Before I was the powerful, <laughs> successful, sexy older man you see in front of you. They they knew me when I was just. Well, do you know what I mean? But they keep me accountable as well. But I've trusted them a lot of the time with some of my most kind of intimate details in my life. And I've I've learned that from being very young. I've always kind of been very open and shared with them. And even though, because a lot of them haven't done the same with me, and that's okay, that's all right, you know? But I feel sometimes you can kind of, um, clutch this mask and that's what they do they wear this mask especially with men and they wear it so fucking tightly that it's kind of rusted onto them and the thought of even removing it and being vulnerable would be so painful that they'd rather just let some toxic rust kind of seep into them if that makes sense do you know what i mean by that yeah. it's hard to be open you know um so with that in mind with the importance of vulnerability because it carves out who you are you know, like these moments in your life that are painful. My dad left when I was, I, I can't even remember. I remember stealing, actually. I remember stealing um, uh, some cards from my dad when I was little, right? He, he liked to play poker, right? And I idolized my dad. Like, he used to wear fancy suits and he'd bring me to the tailor and get me three-piece suits as a little lad. And I lo- like just thought he was the bomb, thought he was the best. And he played cards and he, was, he had a cool car and all that jazz. And... I remember waking up one night to him screaming at me. I was only little and I'd been playing with the cards. I don't know what I'd done, but I'd I'd lost some of the cards. Like I wasn't playing poker or anything. I was just messing around with them. And um and he was going mental. He was going crazy at me. And a couple of days later he left and I didn't see him again. And for a long time I thought I had done something. You know, I thought I I'd messed up in some way. And then as life goes on, and I, my mom actually helped me through all that. But you realize certain things happen in your life and they define who you become, you know, and to talk about it is vulnerable. And this is the problem that people have. It, 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 you know, it's seen as a weakness and it's not a weakness. You know, it's a superpower. 
because otherwise like you either let it out or you stuff it down inside you somewhere and deny it and, and that's that's not good but I have I'm very lucky I have a close group of friends one or two in particular who I'm just open with who I can share with I have my sister my my missus and um, my best mates um, and I can be open like that but a lot of people just don't they're just terrified I have friends who, who are like that. They just can't can't open up about things. And that's why I thought this episode was so important about vulnerability, you know. Um, I My guest today is Gethin Aldous. He is one of the directors of the critically acclaimed feature documentary, The Work. It is the bomb. It is an awesome movie. It's, I'm very loud, am I? I'm a loud guy, but it's a great movie. It's a game changer. It won the Grand Jury Prize for Best Documentary at South by Southwest in 2017. Uh, the Audience Award at the Sheffield Doc Fest again. Uh, nominated Best Documentary at the IP, IFP Gotham Awards. And nominated Best Cinema Documentary. Let's, listen, the work is set inside a single solitary room in Folsom Prison. Uh, it, it, the work follows three men from outside as they participate in a four-day group therapy retreat with maximum security convicts and killers. Over the four days, each man goes on what can only be described as a modern-day exorcism. It, it's unbelievable to see, and it highlights the power and the necessity of vulnerability in our society. Uh, that, all that aside, Gethin is also someone I've worked with um, and has been a peer of mine for over two decades. And I love him. Um, num, num, num. Love him. He's great. Uh, <laughs> for dramatic pause. So just so you know, in this episode, there is some um, talk about sexual abuse and things that might upset some listeners. So just to give you a heads up, some of the content can be a little bit heavy in it. But um, yeah, there you go. Just flagging that. This is that chat. Gethin, so listen, do you know what I realised the other day? In all my life, after travelling all the places that I've travelled, the name Aldous, I've never come across it, right? And then, there I am watching the living legend that's Russell Brand in, in uh, Get Him to the Greek. And his name is Aldous Snow. And, and he encompasses everything I, I, I know about you. This sexy, confident individual. And I was like... That's you, man. That's 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 you're 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 that dude. So there's there's so much, right? There's so much I wanna I wanna kind of I don't know where to start with you. So start. Tell me this. What was what was the plan when you left school? What did you what did you want to do? What was what was your kind of ambition? So let me take a step back a sec. So you just called me a confident, sexy individual. I don't see myself like that. But you never did. You were the director on How Low Can You Go, right? This was my first ever television project, yeah. right? And someone one day just said, do you want to travel around the world and party? And I was like, fuck yeah, I do. Yeah, so, and I went. And it's like that line in, in you know, in Fight Club, where at the end he goes, you met me at a very strange time in my life. It, I, I lost all... It was just, it was the closest thing to being in a rock band. Honestly, that's what it was like. We just went from town to town um, going mental. And the only person quite as mental as the three of us was you. You were filming it and directing it. And I remember it just happened. It's possibly, like kids aside and the missus and all, it's possibly one of the greatest times of my life. Like it was, it was it was just beautiful. It was a beautiful moment in my life. It was very special. Was it special for you? Did it leave a lasting effect on you? It was incredible. 
It was incredible. Like, I think it, I think it changed me. What was weird about it is, like, we did it, we would just do it, like, six weeks of the year. And then I wouldn't really hear from you guys at all. I wouldn't, wasn't involved in the editing. I didn't know if the show was doing well or not. And then we'd meet up a year later and you'd be like, eh, everyone loves the show. It's getting, like, fucking amazing ratings. I'm like, oh, great, let's, let's just keep going. And we were just, we were just winging it. It was, I think it was in Australia. And I don't know, I don't know from my childhood or what it was, but there was something that I never really saw myself. And I remember standing in this bar in, in Australia, and I think I said, you know, women don't really notice me. And you were just outraged. And you were like, what? What do you mean they don't notice? That woman there, and you started pointing them all out. And then you, for the next sort of, I don't know, period of time, whenever we walked into someone, you would sort of point it out. And it was, I, I didn't even know that. Um, I didn't know my power. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. It's knowing your power. See, I, yeah. that was the problem. I, I was very aware of, of, <laughs> of the power at that age. It's, it's a youthful kind of blind. Like I was saying to someone else recently, if you could bottle that shit, if you could bottle that attitude and, and kind of feelings that you have as a young person, you kind of lose it as you get older a bit. You start to doubt yourself. And, but when you're young, you just, you just... And you were having so much fun. But yeah. but I always remember like at that stage you were directing us right so you were yeah. you were a TV director um, or film director but you know how I got the gig no having a clue. I wasn't I I was hired as a as a cameraman so my daughter was like ten days old which means I've known you sixteen years <laughs> my daughter was like ten days old and I was given this gig as a cameraman and I don't know if you remember there was a guy who was directing it he was originally the director who was a bit of a nut job and they basically. They fired him sort of halfway through. And I got a call saying, can you direct it as well? And I was like, fuck yeah, man, let's do it. Let's do it. And then they gave me, I think they gave me two other ones in that season. I think one of them I was just a cameraman and some other guy was directing and I ended up just sort of taking over. And then and then they gave me all the rest of them. The last weekend of the last season that we did in Miami was definitely one of the wildest fucking weekends of my life. Well, like, we, we don't have to go into too much details because I have a brand <laughs> getting now and I have to be careful. But yeah, it, it, was, it was insane. Like, I, like, I remember literally yeah. I would finish with you guys and then, like, when we finished in Australia, I took the rest of the year off. So I would just, I think I met someone in Australia and then I went traveling Asia with them and, yeah, yeah. and, uh, got robbed in Cambodia and ended up living in yes, a fishing village. Yes. And, and it was just this wild kind of... I remember I was sleeping on a pool table in a bar and this guy with a Dublin jersey walked by and he was just like, oh my God, you're that guy from the show. You, you live like this for real. And I was like, yeah, man, like this is it. This is how we do it. <laughs> and it all just seemed so normal back then. I, yeah. I, God, that was fun. Wasn't that good fun? It was fun. It was fun. And it, the fact that it ended up being in Ireland a mega successful show with like crazy ratings and like I came to I came to Ireland maybe a year and a half after it finished and it was like being in fucking entourage like it was just like everywhere we went it was oh you're the guys you're the guys and I was like what the fuck did we do this is insane yeah. there was a thing that you and I sort of related to and I think this is what we, we've always related through and always will do is we were always looking for the deeper thing. So it was always like, yeah, it's got to be funny, it's got to be light, it's got, but there's always got to be a deeper scoop to it all. And like good comedy is people who have a, you know, who, who sort of, you know, see what life is beneath the surface. And we were always sort of seeking that out in the, in the shows. And, well, it's and, that thing, it's something that I've kept in, in other stuff that I do where. It, when people are emotionally open with laughter, you know, you laugh one minute, you're emotionally open, you're, you're, you're expelling certain emotions, and then 
when you, when you hit them with something poignant or something, now I'm not sure how poignant, how low can you go was, but you can really connect yeah. with people, you know? And I think there was an honesty to how low can you go. Like we'd arrive in Paris and I think it was in Marseille or somewhere. We arrived in Marseille and like they put us in, the lowest form of comedy was like stick us in some stupid French outfit with a beret and onions around our neck and just insult everybody. <laughs> and then Michael would be there the whole time going, this place is shit. And like no travel show goes, oh, this place is shit. But there was a certain honesty to someone just really being disgruntled about the place they've been sent to on holiday and still going, this is shit. I don't like it here. You know what I mean? Which I, I think people connected with because that's what backpacking at that age is that's what that's what it is it's just going to places and some places yeah. you love and some places you just won't but you buy into the friendship it's that it's yeah. you felt like you were on the road with these three people or whatever the family was you know of, of us but i want to go back to, back from that get so yeah. originally wasn't it music wasn't that wasn't that your bag yeah yeah so i i um i sort of dropped out of school at 17 and then I was kind of interviewed. I set up my own business and then sort of I had that for like six months selling car telephones. And I had like a midlife crisis at 17. <laughs> I was like, what am I doing? I don't want to be a fucking, you know, I was just trying to get rich. And it's like, it's, it just sort of hit me. That's not where it's at. And I love playing music. And I said, you know what? I just want to fucking play music. Did you study music? Well, what I did was I then spent the next four years busking, traveling, doing whatever I could to make a living as a musician. Then eventually I went back to music college at 21. So but for four years, I, yeah, I was basically a musician. I would, I would do sort of odd jobs here, there, and everywhere when I needed to buy, get money for a, a flight somewhere. I spent like a year in Israel, quite a few stints sort of just backpacking around Europe and busking and wake up, you know, wake up in the morning with no money. Wake up in the morning with no money, nowhere to stay. Um, there was four of us when we started this sort of backpacking, this busking around Europe thing that I did. And... There was something I learned there, which was something that it was, it was about letting go. It was like, there was, I think there was a point in Israel where I gave someone my guitar and my passport. And I, when I stood on this hill, I remember it overlooking a lap and I had nothing. Like I had no money in the bank. I had no credit card. I had no house. I had no partner. I had no nothing. And I was sort of 19 or, or 20 maybe by then just thinking, all right, it can't get any lower than this. And this feels pretty fucking good. So, but there's something, there's something in that. I remember be, being in, uh, being in one of the islands in Asia, and you know, like you have these things that give you security. Maybe it's you, you know the car you have, or you know certain clothes, or kicks, or trainers, or style that you have. And all of a sudden, you're in like a pair of shorts, and everybody's the same. And you're like, oh god, I don't have, I don't have my shit, I, the shit I need to make me acceptable to other people. Like you, you just have to. It's raw. You might as well just be there bollock yeah. naked with everyone and you're like, oh God, they have to now like me for me. There's something kind of refreshing in that. It's, it, that's the great thing about traveling, isn't it? Though? I loved it. I loved it. That was, that was a real moment for me. And it sort of felt, it felt really empowering. I remember the point when I went back to my friend and sort of took my guitar back from him and my passport. And I was just like, all right. That, that felt like freedom to me because it sort of was freedom of all the things we're told to be afraid of. It's like, well, I'm, I'm okay standing with nothing. I didn't have a job. I didn't have any way to earn my next bit of money. But I knew it was going to be okay. So it was, there was definitely something really valuable in that. And then it was weird because then I, through some weird sort of synchronicity, I met this fucking, I met this jazz guitarist. Where did I meet him? I met him on the kibbutz. That was it. I met this jazz guitarist on the kibbutz and he just blew me away with how he could play. And I was like, oh my God, I want to be able to do that. And then he said, oh, if you're ever in Holland, come and visit me. I, I work at this car boot, boot fair at the weekend in this town called Leiden. And that's all I knew. 
So then I find myself in Holland sort of six months later after busking around and whatever. And then I was like, fuck it, I want to go to Leiden and find this dude. I don't know where in Leiden he is. <laughs> yeah, I arrive at the train station. I was with this friend of mine, Sharon, and we like, let's go this way. So we turn right, and I was like, no, it's this way. And just walked straight into the dude. And it was like, oh, here he is, because I'm supposed to meet him, because this was the next. And this is when I started to see the magic in the world and how these weird sort of synchronistic events would sort of happen every time. Every time I felt myself really letting go, weird universe shit would happen. But is that like a manifestation of stuff, or no, it's just the way the universe works for you? It's just the way the universe works, I think. And we'll, we'll get into that because I was, that's basically sort of, yeah, my life kind of moved in that direction. But anyway, met this guy. We then went back to his apartment. We jammed all afternoon. I was like, I'm going to music college. And that's why I made the decision. From this little synchronistic event to completely give up traveling and go and focus on music for three years. And then when you finished there, what was the crack? Did you, did you like it? Did you, you loved it, obviously. No. No. Okay, I didn't know shit about music. I didn't know that. I didn't know anything about music. I could play, but I didn't know anything. I didn't know what three, four was, four, four. I didn't know there was time signatures. But there was this judgment that I felt on everything, everyone who was playing. If you didn't play it right, or you didn't play it well enough, you were sort of being judged. You're being judged by the other students. You're being judged by the teachers. And this is something I learned later. And I ended up getting tendonitis. So a year and a half in. I, I, the first year I kind of fucked around I partied a lot I went back to Israel in the summer I didn't really commit to this thing I was going to commit to then I got back from the summer and like right I'm going to practice six hours a day I'm here I'm here to become a good musician I'm going to catch up with all these motherfuckers I'm going to practice six hours a day every single day and I'm going to become a decent musician and three months into that my playing was just going through the roof I got tendonitis so one day I just woke up and I couldn't play I couldn't, my, my left hand just stopped working. I couldn't even open a can of beans. Like I couldn't squeeze a can over enough to, to, to open a thing. So my hand just stopped working. And that, at that point, music was my life. Like it was, it's how I got laid. It's how I earned money. It was what I was going to do. It's how I made friends. It was, I, everything I did, I hit behind the guitar. It gave me confidence. It gave me, gave me power. And it was suddenly gone. But that's a huge part of your identity, right? That's, that's, that's the guy you are. It was everything. Yeah, I was a musician. And that's who I was. And it was just, overnight it was suddenly not there anymore and it was it was a it was a big um sort of soul searching moment um i ended up convincing this these guys at a bar one night there was they were doing like 20 pounds return if you come within 24 hours to take your car across the ferry to calais and back so i was like let's jump in the car we'll drive to paris have a few beers on the steps of the sacre coeur and then come back and they were in, but the reason I was doing it is because I needed to fucking remember there was a bigger world out there. And I needed to remember that feeling of standing in Israel with nothing and knowing it's going to be okay. Because as far as I was concerned, life was, I didn't have anything anymore. I mean, life was, I was going to, you know, it was over. And so I needed to be reminded of how big and amazing the world is. So we went out there and I, yeah, we sat on the steps of the Sacre Coeur, had a bottle of wine. And I was just like, it's going to be okay. Something else is going to happen. And just, you know, and just be open to the, and it's one of the lessons that I've really learned in life is, is I'm still struggling with it. I had a thing with my wife the other day where I, but anyway, my, what I'm trying to learn and trying to remember is to, <laughs> is to set That's a my... different podcast. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to that. Is to, is to, is to set my intention, like really fucking go for things, but let go of the outcome. But no, it might not go where I think it's going to go and be open to where it is going to go. You, you know what I'm saying? saying? Yeah, I get you. 
But you see, that's so, it's that's the thing that gets people sometimes. They think the success is in in the end result. Yeah. Do you know they think it's where that's where they land. But sometimes that landing, even if that's not where you wanted it to be, that sends you off on a difference. When you forget, it's it's all about the bit. It's not about where you're trying to go. That was the thing I learned from traveling. It's not. It's got nothing to do with where you're trying to go. It's got to do with the journey of getting there. That's the fucking. That's the day a day of living life and having a rich life and friends and connection and this and the other things. Yeah, you might die before you get there. So, you know, enjoy the journey on the way. So yeah, so that was so basically, I, I ended up staying at music college because I, I I sort of felt but like not being able to play. I couldn't play, but I felt I couldn't leave either. So I started playing the drums and flute and thinking my hand would just get better, but I wasn't doing anything to make it get better. And when I what I learned later, and again, this is something that changed my life, was. A friend of mine also got tendonitis and he couldn't let go of the music. Like he had to fix it. I wasn't driven to fix it. I could I could let go of it and see what else was going to come. End up going into film, which was my sort of second passion. But he couldn't let go of it. And he ended up finding this um, Jungian music therapist. And this Jungian music therapist um, said, well, what happens actually is those judgments that people were sort of laying on you landed with your own sort of... Um, I don't want to say broken, but your own complicated psyche and would cause just this little bit of resistance between your brain and your flow and the music and your fingers. And that tiny bit of resistance, which came from your childhood wounds, from your father stuff, from your mother stuff, from your friends, from your family, from society, from all these things, that tiny little bit of resistance, that's what would build up over time and become tendonitis. So actually the way to heal it was actually to go back into the past, find out what these blocks are, uh, what your wounds are, maybe your original wound even, and heal that, and then you could play properly, which was interesting. See, all I'm hearing is your parents fuck you up. We all know that. It is, isn't that the yeah. truth? That's the fucking truth, man. Your childhood, it all stems. It also, and even even with the best of intention, even the best. Some people are fucked up by being overloved. Like, <laughs> you know, as a parent, if you've got like five thousand children, like as a parent, you got to, you know, you just you just do the best you can. And know that they're going to be bitching you out in therapy at some point in their life. Because <laughs> that's just... I had to school my eight-year-old recently about the tooth fairy. She got two teeth removed, right? And I fed her yeah. ice cream and stuff. And then afterwards, Tanya came downstairs and she was like, you know, you know, you need to get changed to put under a pillow. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? She's, she's 10. Like, she'll be destroyed. She goes into school and tells people she's, she got this off the tooth. No, it's the fucking tooth fairy's over. It's time to school her. So she was distraught. Like distraught about it, and she's like, oh, "I can't believe you lied to me." And I, I was like, "Hold on, a fucking, let's put all this in perspective." I didn't fucking just like my father left when I was seven. Like, let's fucking get a grip on this. I just lied to you to soothe the, the pain of being a child with with a missing tooth. And then and then she, I was like, "Look, I'll buy you out. I'll buy your teeth off you, you know." And I had to, and I was like, like twenty euros. She's like a thousand. I was like a thousand. Kiss my fucking arse. But but it is all that it is all that relation like I'm doing a lot of stuff at the moment, right? And it's it's all childhood, man. It's all yeah. It's all childhood. It's all back to childhood. You know, you know. I'm I'm going to jump all over the place just so you know. Yeah. The work for anyone who doesn't know what the work is. The work is a documentary. I end up helping to get made about this, and by help to get made, I was like basically they they shot this footage inside Folsom Prison about six years before I found out about it. And it was about these, um, I'd say they're sort of therapy weekends, but that is a very loose term for it. Like 
They're like fucking exorcism. There's an organization called the Mankind Project, which... The Mankind? Mankind Project. Okay. In fact, this is a good little throughway, actually. So the guy that I mentioned earlier who got tendonitis and wouldn't let it go and then found the Jungian therapist, as part of his therapy, the therapist was like, you need to go and do this. And he called it, it was like an initiation weekend. Now, when we think about initiation in the modern world, it's like... Um, like frat houses in or, or the military was just like, you get fucking hosed and beaten up and stripped naked. And, but initiations have existed throughout for millennia in every indigenous society throughout the world. have had this, this ritual for young men where they become a man. Sure. Now, some of them were, were quite violent. And some of them, the kids ended up could get killed. Some of them would just fucking would slice your foreskin off without any war. You know, it was, some of them, they would feed you the blood of the older men, but there was always this... But incredibly important. That's what they believed it took to tame the, the, the wounds in the psyche of a young man and allow him to let go of all the shit he picked up as a child and step into who he's supposed to be. And by supposed to be, I don't mean who society thinks he's supposed to be, but supposed to be by that thing that's calling from deep within. Like Native Americans called it a vision quest. You go out and you would sit in the woods for five days and starve yourself and... And wait for your vision to come. Wait for that, that, that thing that's in you, that's burning. That's someone could describe once as your soul's code. And this is what I found out that, that in my life, when I tap into that thing, that's what we're going to talk about a lot more today, I think. When you tap into that thing, that's when the magic starts to happen. Um, that's when the synchronicity starts to happen. And, and in there is some magic. So let me just go, let me, let me take a step back. So, so my friend... Um, my friend went and did this weekend, the Mankind Project, the, the one who, as, as part of his healing of his, his tendonitis. And it fucking blew his mind because it was basically this organization that worked out how to do a modern version of that kind of deeply spiritual initiation. And that initiation into, as in, start to let go of the wounds of your childhood and step into who you're supposed to be. And for seven years... Every time I saw this motherfucker, he would say, you done the weekend yet? And I go, fuck off. Done the weekend, <laughs> fuck off. That kind of vibe. <laughs> so, and then, I don't know, cut to seven years later, I've now met this amazing woman who's now my wife, moved to New York, and I just woke up one day. And I was like, I'm a fucking child. And this was 13 years ago, so I was 35. And I was like, I'm a fucking child. And whatever it is, He's been saying to me for the last seven years, I need it and I need it now. I don't know what it is, but I need it and I need it now. And so I then reached out to the local Mankind Project and like, oh yeah, we got one in like nine days. There's loads but, of them, they're <laughs> everywhere. It's all over the world now, yeah. They started, it started in America in the, in the late 80s. And it's all get back to the work, this is all, it's all connected. And um, yeah, and I went, I went and did this thing and, and, and I remember this feeling, I'll never forget it, as I was walking up this muddy pathway to where they sort of greet you at the entrance of this place and i could feel like it's like electricity in my body i could feel like this something was fucking going on something major was going on inside my body and i was like whatever it is this i i i, I remember thinking there's something i need and i fucking need it now like i could like, like i'm gonna cry my eyes out like i need it and i need it fucking now and this i i hope this is it because if it isn't i don't know what i'm gonna do i mean it was Changed my what, life. What, what, you walk into a place, what is it? Is it, is it like, you know, like I have like an AA meeting, you know, like is there coffee on tables and people sitting around and, uh, on chairs or is it outdoors? Is it like a... It's in the woods. It's in the woods. Ayahuasca so it's sort of, or something, you know what I mean? It's, there's no drugs. It's, it's in the woods. And I, it's one of these things where they, they, 
they ask us to keep the process confidential because there's something about going through the process, which, and it's not like it's cult, it's just because if you know what's going to happen, it's not quite the same experience. But what it was, was an attempt to create a, a modern day initiation. And there was one of, the, one of the main components, which is what you see in the work, in the film, the, the documentary of the work, which I'll, I'll explain in a sec, is this thing we call carpet work, which is a moment where you just sort of step on a carpet and there's a lot of men with a, intention of helping you access whatever those deep wounds are. And I remember when we, you go one at a time and do this carpet work. And I remember the first guy stepped up and I just started crying. So this was on the Saturday afternoon. So you arrived Friday night and they spent like 24 hours sort of getting you ready and doing these different processes and just slightly cracking you open, cracking you open, getting you ready. And then the moment, yeah, this first guy went, I just started crying. I couldn't stop. I was just wailing, bawling my Why? eyes out. And I just like, Why though? Because there was shit inside me that needed to come out. And in our society, there's no way to get it out. Where do you get to have those kinds of emotional releases? Where do you get to mourn your fucking childhood and the things you didn't have and the and the, the, the pain that you picked up and the suffering and the suffering of the world and whatever the fuck it is if you're a sensitive person, whatever you picked up, when do you get a chance to scream it out? When do you get a chance to fucking wear it? When do you get a chance just to be held by a, a group of men and say, we give a shit, you matter? Simple fucking things, but things that are life-changing. And so all I know is I started crying my, I don't know what's going on. Oh no, I was crying my fucking eyes out. And then they said, who's next? I was like, I have to go now. I'm going to fucking. And I had this emotional release. Like I'd never had, like I'd been bottling some shit up my whole fucking life. And I got an opportunity to let it out. And I remember the Sunday morning, we sort of all stand around in circle by this lake. It's out in the woods. And I remember, I'd, I, I think I'd been crying again that morning. And I remember just sort of, Standing there with my hands open, just saying, I feel the trees, I can feel the air, I can feel the water for the first time in my life. When you went in there, like, were you upset about something? Was there something, because I know you're a deep thinker, I know you analyse things and we're similar like that. We spend a lot of time in the back of our own heads. But were were, were you upset about something? Was there something that pushed you or was it uh, you were just feeling unsatisfied with who you are or where you're at or... Was it bigger than that or? It was a feeling that something needed to change. It was, as I said earlier, it's a feeling that I felt like I was a child and I needed to grow up and I didn't know how to grow up. And I think it was, I needed to be fucking initiated. I needed to have that moment where I could actually just let go of some shit and step into it was. And I, I, then, I then ended up doing this sort of work for, I've been doing it now for 13 years. I've started an organisation that does it. I've done this work inside prisons with it. And so that was sort of what led to the work. So the same organisation, the Mankind Project, 20 years ago, again through magic. So, I mean, this is just an amazing story. There's a, there's a, there's a, a prisoner called Patrick Nolan, who was this prison poet. And there was a riot one day and his best friend got shot by one of the guards. And then they were all in lockdown for sort of seven months. And he's, he's Aryan Brotherhood. He's in this racist organisation in, in a prison. And someone passed him the book Man's Search for Meaning. Which I don't know if you've read it by Vic, Victor Frankl, which is about... a a guy's experience um, in Auschwitz. And he read this book and he just had this epiphany and he's just like, there has to be another way. It's just us against them and this constant fighting and this constant, and he was like, no, I'm gonna fucking change it. And so we sort of think about people feeling powerless out in the, powerless out in the world. A man dying of hepatitis C inside a maximum security prison said, I'm gonna change the fucking world. And I think he did, <laughs> I think he did. He then, some of his poetry was published in the local newspaper. Yeah, can I say one of his poems? Yeah. I, I, I sort of learn poems off by heart as part of my, I don't know, my flex, practice. Flex, flex, let, let me hear it, come on. And it's, it's a beautiful one, you can always cut it. <laughs> um, so he wrote his poem, it's one of the poems that he wrote in prison. It's called Were I a Wolf, yeah? Were I a wolf, 
solitary tracker of the moon, these padded paws would pummel with urgent rhythmic rise, this primal lament that invades my heart against the night's moist, mossy carpet. Until I broke free from the forest's dark foreboding depths to the timberline, and with one ferocious, mournful note let rip this anguish from outstretched throat. If only I were a wolf, and not this pathetic creature called man whose broken, gnarled teeth snap shut to grief, too choked by terror of the deep-chested, guttural emotions that would devour me whole if I suddenly let go. If only I were a wolf. Good shit, man. It's a good fucking poem, man. It's a good fucking poem. It's funny you talk about all this because there's this vibe with the toxic masculinity and talking about exactly. feelings. and You know, that's, that's something that's happened. But you're talking years and years before that. These are people who were... And these are the most toxic, like... These were killers, man. Killers, killers. in prison, for fuck's sake. Not just, not just the lower guys. These were the guys who were running the fucking prison, in a level four prison. And Patrick said, I'm going to make a difference. So some of his poetry had been published in the local newspaper. And this is where the magic comes in. Some of the poetry published in the local newspaper. This guy called Don Morrison, who was a B-52 bomber pilot. So he's probably killed more people than everyone in the fucking prison combined. But he's a hero and he gets a medal for it. And he read some of this poetry and he was in the mythopoetic movement with Robert Bly and these guys who believe that poetry was this way to access and, and learning poems, which is why I sort of got the idea of learning them off by heart. Was Learning poetry was this way of um, bringing the poems into yourself and, and accessing this deeper part of yourself through the poetry. So this guy, Don Morrison, was a part of this movement. Plus, he was also in the Mankind Project. So he was also doing men's work and sitting in a circle and doing this kind of this deep emotional release stuff, you know. And um, they became pen pals and they started talking and they're like, how can we, how do I change it? And Don's like, well, how about you start a prison circle inside the prison? And he's like, well, I can't do it unless the fucking heads of the yard are into it and the heads of the yard, you know, they're all enemies. So the, this is where the story gets, I've heard different versions of this story. I'm going to say this version. If it's not true, sorry, everybody out there, but it's a nice <laughs> fucking story. <laughs> so my understanding is that he had to quit the gang that he was in in order to be able to talk to other people in the gang. And that means you're a lone wolf, which means anyone can come after you. So you basically put your life on the line in order to be able to communicate with other people. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. But he fought the people off and eventually they let him go and then he could start to talk to other people on the yard. He also had um, a lot of the guy, a lot, he was feeling a lot of resistance from people when he said this, this start a circle and we're just, they were going to do it in the chapel where it's neutral ground on the few places where you can't sort of kill someone else. And he was getting a lot of resistance. So he went on the prison radio and this is where we, we I got into the idea of vulnerability being our superpower. So as men, we're taught not to be emotional and to, to suppress everything and keep it down and stiff up a lift and especially Englishmen and sort of be, you know. So what he did was he, he realised this because he was fucking brilliant and he went on the prison radio and talked about when he was raped as a 10 or 11 year old boy and told everyone. Told everyone what it did to him, how it made him feel, how it fucked his life up and I think it just, these guys who, as I said, these guys who were running the gangs who were these killers, just something in that courage. Just penetrated them. Just pierced the armour. Just enough for them to go, oh, for fuck's sakes, all right. What? Okay, where do I have to show up? What time? And it went from there. So Don Morrison knew this biker guy, this guy called Rob Albee, um, who'd done about seven years in prison. He found men's work and then he'd gone to, um, he met this guy called Maladonna Some, who was this shaman from Burkina Faso. And Rob went to Burkina Faso and did like the initiation they do there, which is 
if you want to read about this shit, there's a book called Of Water and Spirit. And uh, Maladonna Somi tells about his initiation. And you read this stuff and it's just like, you know, because we have our perception of reality. Their perception of reality is completely different. It's, in what it's, way? It's, well, there's a point in it where the, he, you basically you run into a tree. And when you go through the tree, you then go into this sort of altered space. And in that space, you may or may not come out. This is the initiation. And once you're in that thing, you might just stay in that thing forever. And there might be no way of you coming out back into the real world. Or if you're worthy of it, you'll come, you'll be spat back out of the, you know, it's just like you read the fucking thing. I mean, it's just like, I, uh, <laughs> you know, and my friend Rob went and did it. And I'm like, did you do the whole treat? And he's like, yeah, yeah. You won't really talk about it because it's all kind of, it's just like, oh. So I don't know. It's, it, to me, it's like, where does the metaphor end? When, where does the reality end? Where's the, you know, we, we perceive reality through a lens. Now we've been given a lens to perceive reality, our language, our upbringing, our this and, and, you know, and reality tends to fit within that construct. And then there are these sort of magical synchronistic moments which don't fit into that construct. And to me, that's like the crack in the matrix. It's like, well, what? But what's that? What's this other? Is there another another world behind the the, the veil that you can sort of peek behind every now and again? It's like, what? oh fuck! And basically, what he did was he managed to get all these killers into this group together. And they managed to get them to start to, to talk. And they got this guy, Rob Albee, who was the guy who'd gone to Burkina Faso and come back and done his initiation. He went in to teach creative writing. And he's just got this vulnerability. Like his father was a preacher. He used to preach on a Sunday and then beat him with a belt on the way home afterwards. But then he'd done all this work as well on himself. He'd done the Mankind Project, he'd done this stuff. So he then came in and these guys could sort of see themselves in him. So him and Patrick, I think, kind of held this space. But there was this, they were just bad, tough dudes who also could be vulnerable. And they started to bring this whole new concept in. So all the guys, all these killers are kind of sitting around in a circle and it's kind of like a, they're just telling their, their stories, they're explaining. Because like, if you look at certain scenes, there's lads like, like being held down and screaming and punching and it looks like, like quite an damaged individuals, aren't they really? Like all of them. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like an exorcism. And what they realised was, so they started doing these circles. There's only one guy in there and it was hard to get into the really sort of physical stuff because there's some stuff where you, you get to emotions that are so deep and so, so difficult to access. So then they came up with this fucking crazy idea. They do these Mankind Project weekends that I was talking about walking down the path to and bring them into the maximum security prison, which was just so fucking out there. And yet somehow... The administration agreed to it. And it's funny because they agreed to the first weekend and then Patrick died about a week before. But while he was in hospital, they came to him and said, they've agreed to the first weekend. So this guy knew that he'd, he'd made a difference. He knew that he'd started something. And then they started doing these weekends. And, and just let me just say as, as a side note, there wasn't a single race riot in Folsom Prison for 12 years because of this group. So a place that had them all the time. Because all the heads of the gang were sitting in a circle again, or at least enough of them. To, to make a difference. It just made a fucking difference. It just made a difference. And then they started getting released and then transferred to lower security prisons. To me, it's like, if they'd all stayed, there would have been a tipping point where you'd have walked onto that yard as a new guy. And you wouldn't have needed guards anymore. How do you, how do you implement something like that, though, like in, in, outside of a Fulton prison? How do you implement that in a, like, if you're not someone who's you know, as damaged as those people. Can you still, can you still use that process? Does it still work the same? Yeah, yeah. oh yeah. But I, I, let me get to that in a second. Let me just finish off the, the fulsome thing. So, so yeah, what you see in the, the work is one of those weekends that they started doing where they bring like a, a, a group of really skilled facilitators from the outside, a group of just regular folk because there was some real healing in the, in the prisoners 
seeing that they could actually heal regular people. So people come in thinking they've got nothing they need to work on, thinking they're just fine. Maybe they just come to look at the prisoners in the zoo kind of vibe. And then before they know it, the lens is being pointed at them by these prisoners who have been doing this shit week in, week out for years at this point and touch such deep stuff in themselves and they could start to see those things in, in other people. And they, for the first time in their life, started to see themselves as healers. Instead of everyone who told them they're fuck-ups, they're killers, they're this, they're that, they'll never be anything. Suddenly they started to say, actually, fuck, I just, I just helped somebody. I just healed somebody. And, and what are this... they doing? Are, are they interrogating each other? Are they questioning each other? Is it, is it, it must be quite horrible in one way as well, though. Is it for them? It's not an interrogation. It's a... Because it's not like a therapy where you sit down and just go, look, this is my story. These guys are pulling it out of each other, aren't they? The, the, the way it works is you, you, what you have to do is you have to create a thing that we call a container. And the more powerful this container is, the more healing that happens in it. And what the container is, it's just a group of people setting their intention. And you have to do it fairly ritualistically. So in the film, you'll see the guy does this sort of chant at the beginning. You have to bring a little bit of ritual into it, a bit of poetry, a bit of da-da-da. And then everyone's voice has to be heard. And, and, and what happens is, especially in the prison, because they, they only get this two times a year. And so the guys are coming in like, I'm going to fucking get mine. Like, I need a fucking heal because I need to get the fuck out of here. Or I need to heal because I need, just need to feel fucking better. A lot of them weren't even thinking about getting out. I didn't think that was a possibility. And I just need a heal. So they would just be vulnerable. And so one person would share and it would just drop us a little bit deeper. And then the next person would go even deeper. And they would just... And it would just go that way. And then there's, there's, there are techniques. So there's techniques of how you help people access that part. A lot of it is is going back to the memory and allowing you to re-experience maybe an incredibly traumatic memory but this time you're held. This time you love through it. This time you, 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 you can get to, for a lot of them, what we have to, what you have to do is you have to get through the anger first. Cause the anger has a cap on it, all the other emotions. And you can't get past the anger because they have to suppress the anger because the anger got them in prison. And it was well, rage. We'd say there's a difference between rage and unhealthy. That's what it unhealthy. is, isn't it? You have immense sadness and you can't, you tap into that emotion. So you get rid of sadness and you replace those emotions into anger and you become damaged because your, your because the pain is, is instead of crying you just you just lash out yeah because the, the, the pain is so much that it's easier to kill a man because he's triggered that pain in you than it is to face the pain prison is full of men who the pain is just so much that that was that was so they went forward instead of back the the childhood wound like I, a good friend of mine eldra who's in the film eldra was given an opportunity a choice when he was eight or nine years old by his babysitter of either being he would be molested or his four-year-old sister be molested. And so he chose, he was, he made the choice to be molested. And in that moment, some life decisions were made for him. One, if you love someone, it makes you vulnerable, it makes you weak. If you don't love anybody, then no one can ever make, that. make that fucking choice again. Two, if anyone's going to do some fucking hurting in the room, it's going to be him. This is just how, and, it, and, and this, this memory was so traumatic that he blanked it completely. He had no memory of it. Through How life, did that getting come back? It just organically came out as people were delving deeper and deeper and deeper into it. Like a year and a half into being in the group, it, it came back. And this was a guy who was considered more dangerous than Charles Manson at one point. He was in solitary confinement with Charles Manson and Charles Manson had more freedom than him. This is how far he went into that wound and how deep he went into the sort of darkness without even knowing what it was. Until some people gave him the opportunity to have a look at it. Like a year and a half into sitting in circle, the memory came back. And he was like, oh, my God. And then he could start to piece his life back together again. And then it took him like another 10 years. And then they let him out. But he was one of the lucky ones. He was one of the ones that got an opportunity to actually 
take a look at it. And as I say, when you see, it, we mentioned earlier, when you see it in the film, it's 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 like exorcisms. Yeah. Because you have to, and you have to create a safe space where that anger can come out. And they they don't want it to come out, man, because they know what happens. And you're like, no, it can come out here. You come out here. And something about allowing it to come out in a place that's safe. And be witnessed in your fucking anger and your pain. And so many of them, the anger comes out first and then the crying comes and then the, then the dead, and, you know. And then you can start to talk. And then you can, but it, it's, it's not like you, you pull it out of them because it, it, once you create that space and once it starts popping off, people just want to fucking go. It's like, it's like me on the carpet when I saw it, I just started crying. It's just like, it just, something comes up that suddenly, suddenly your psyche knows it's got permission to let this shit out for the first time in your life. Is there a DIY version of that? Like, like <laughs> I don't want to go into fucking Folsom. But can I do that with John John tonight? Can we just sit here and do our own? No, we can't do it ourselves. We have to, it needs the right people around us. Well, Baz. <laughs> <laughs> Buddy, you should say, we're working on that. So basically, I started going into Folsom in order to help make this basically they were like if you want to help make the film so I found out this footage existed for this that they shot on this weekend and they were like if you, this guy James McClear was like eh my brother if you want to if you want to help us you need to come and see what we're doing so invite me into Folsom too on these weekends so the first weekend I went in there changed my life changed my life there was a moment when I was on the ground wailing from the pit of my soul with these four prisoners who were in prison for life holding me down so I could just rage and fucking and it was a life-changing experience. I mean, I, I, I carry it with me to this day. They gave me like a spirit name. They gave me, you know, the, the fucking shit was crazy. Then the second weekend, something else happened equally as powerful. And then I sort of got the film out, did the film, it did really well. And then um, just vowed to make a difference myself. So I started an organization in New York called All Kings, where we do this kind of work, but we're, we're sort of gearing it for guys. We're trying to sort of help young guys release from prison or older guys, but whatever. So what we do is we build sort of communities, but based around this kind of work, based around sitting in a circle and sharing and, and, and allowing ourselves to go sort of deep into the emotion. And then when COVID kicked in, we actually started doing this shit on Zoom and, and got really? pretty fucking good at it. Yeah. So this is where it got, this is where it got wild. So one of the guys that I met inside Folsom was this guy called Bill Wick. Shout out to you, Bill. Shout out to you. <laughs> who is one of these guys who just was quietly in the background at Folsom. So we sort of stayed in, in touch. He was a very, very skilled facilitator. And whenever stuff went into the really, like, wild place, and I'm talking, I don't know, they call it spirit releasement therapy these days, so it's not exorcism as such, but when it started to get into sort of strange energies, Bill was the guy that sort of came in and, and just knew how to handle that stuff. So when I started All Kings, he came up, and came up for one of the weekends and we were really sort of focused on making it because the Mankind Project is a, is a wonderful organization, but because it was starting the 80s by some white guys, it's a very white organization and a lot of people of color sort of come in and it's just too many white guys and they kind of leave again. So I know I'm a white dude living in New York, but I was just like, I want to start an organization, which is just much, there can't be, it's got to be more people of color than white people. It just has to be because then we can actually start to help the communities that, that need, need the help. Really sort of connected because, yeah, that was it. He'd never really seen such a multicultural space before doing this kind of healing work. So he was just really, really excited about it. And sort of any sexuality, like Bill's gay and any sexuality was okay. And it was just like, it, it, it just, it's just fucking beautiful, man. Um, and then when COVID kicked in, 
Bill called me up and he's like, yeah, I've been doing this. So he's been doing these sort of crazy weekends, which he does, these two weekend courses that he does. And he's like, I've got this idea of bringing this stuff into, I, can, I think I can deliver it in like 40 half hour phone calls. Do you want to be my guinea pig? You and a couple of mates can be my guinea pig. I was like, let's go, Bill. Let's go. What you got? And this ended up, it's called the Omega Point Project. And I think this shit might change the world. I love the way you say that. I could be wrong. <laughs> but what I'm wondering is, what if, what if, what <laughs> I could be not, right, man. Like, I, I believe I'm fucked up enough, but, but what, John John looks fairly balanced. Could John John benefit from it? <laughs> That's what I'm worried about. I know I, know I got a lot of baggage. But, but what, if, what if you're not, do you think, uh, is, do you think everyone can, can, can get something from it? Yeah, everybody. Everybody, everybody, because it's it's universal. Is it just men? No, it is for everybody because some of it's very very simple. Some of it's just active listening. Some of it's just just tell me where you're at, and I'm just gonna echo back. It's echo, silence, and clarify. And we do this thing on Zoom, and we just go get new guys to come in. They go into a, a breakout room with someone, and for ten minutes, someone just listens, and that's it. And they come back and they go, "No one's ever just fucking listened to me before." <laughs> <laughs> like, I talk like and fucking... talk and no one listens. Yeah, it like, is that. people give me advice. So I try to tell me this. Someone just let me just be where I am in my emotions and and just hold fucking space. I mean, obviously that's the very first step of it. Then as, it, as you get into it, what it gets into is it gets into this idea of, of parts work. So in you right now, Baz, is your two year old you, your eight year old you, your eleven year old you, your fifteen year old you, your your go getter, your lazy fuck your you know all the different parts of you that at different points in your life have sort of been at the forefront some of them consciously some of them unconsciously and so bill's idea was like well how about if we create a space inside ourselves we can actually bring all these parts in it's really kind of weirdly schizophrenic this thing but you bring all your parts in and have conversations with them so then you're sort of getting in relationship with these parts i'll, t- I'll give you one sort of concrete example because this is this was not this was my own experience it's okay to talk about so I've been, I may have been a bit of a stonehead pretty much my entire life. And I'd say pretty much every day I would have a, you know, I'd have a split. And I had some great stories I told myself about how it's okay. <laughs> you know, it's my spiritual practice, it's my creativity, it's my this and it's my, you know, all these wonderful, you know, and it's fine because I was a highly functioning, highly I still functional. did very well. Yeah. I, I still did very well in life. Yeah. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like it, it held me back. And it was just part of life and I just did it and, and whatever. And there were definitely negatives as well as positives, positives, but I ignored them all. So anyway, as part of my sacred space work, at one point I brought in this part of me, which was my good time guy. I think you met him when we were traveling around. <laughs> Make it, I'm very fond you of go. him, to be quite honest. Yeah, but yeah. yeah I'm, a, I'm a big fan too. And he's like, it's not like, I'm not trying to kill these parts off. It's just, you know. And then after a little bit of, a few weeks into that, he suddenly morphed into um, into my escape artist. And it was the first time I started to see that part of myself. I was actually trying to separate and actually trying to sort of separate from myself and, 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 and hide because I was maybe uncomfortable in these social situations. So getting completely wasted was the way of doing it. And then I became a sort of part of me and da, da, da. And then a little bit, a few weeks after that, he suddenly became my, he switched. Because, you know, every day you check in with them and they, they you know, they say, oh, actually, I'm not that anymore. And the, the name changed. And he was like, well, no, actually, I'm your addict. And I never sort of seen myself as any kind of an addict. I was I had quite a good handle on most things. And I was like, all right. 
okay, call yourself an addict now, whatever. And then a couple of weeks after that, one day he just changed into this Indian sadhu, like an Indian holy man with like orange robes. And, and this part of me in this meditation said really, really fucking clearly, uh, if smoking weed is part of your spiritual practice, then great. I'm going to be here supporting you. If it isn't, and you're ever smoking just because you want to escape because you're finding it uncomfortable to sit with some emotion or this or that, it's just your bad habit, then I'm going to be there tapping you on the shoulder and saying, mm -mm -mm. and I was like, yeah, whatever. But this works so deep and so deep inside yourself. So the next two or three weeks, every time I smoked, which every day for the next two or three weeks, I could feel this fucking thing. And it's just like, ah, what? You're just ah. calling yourself out, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just this part, in this part, I'd re-sort of jig this part inside of me to actually become who it should be, to serve the role it needs to serve now. So it, it, at different points in my life, it's needed to serve different roles, and it's and it's and it's and it's done me, it's done well for me. But at this point in my life, it needed to change to this, and I just stopped. And it wasn't like some white knuckling. I just stopped, and now you know I have a smoke occasionally when I feel like it, when it feels like the right time and the right place or the right situation. But it's not, it's not an everyday. It's not a, and so it's just suddenly I had this thing under control, and it was just like, oh my god. It's funny when you talk about addiction and identity and stuff like that. Do you know, Mark, me and Michael, none of us drink anymore. No. All of us that did how low. We probably, you know, I think you, it's something that evolves in you as you grow older. You start to look for bigger answers or you start to look at yourself more in the mirror. And that's why all the stuff you're talking about, all that, which is, is very of the now, all this kind of being open and vulnerable. But it's just, I think it's that thing of who are you vulnerable to. I've always found it, as a TV presenter, I've always found it an amazing tool. If I tell you mm. something quickly, really revealing about me, really personal, all of a sudden I'm bringing down barriers because I'm saying I'm not afraid to say this, so can you talk to me? And then you find people naturally become, because they know you're being honest, they know when you're bullshitting them, and they know when you're being 100% honest. But, but there's still that... I wonder in Ireland where that space is for people. It's, it's great that you can do shit like that online. That, that's, that's very clever. I want to ask you about something else just quickly, yeah? Yeah. I always brag about you because, because you probably have possibly one of the coolest jobs in the world ever, right? And I, I just think, I don't think Jamie get. I think you deserve it. What do you do exactly? Uh, I, I, I direct uh, actors in big budget video games. Big yeah, budget yeah, yeah. video games, right? They, I don't know if you're, you, you let's say where. Yeah, you know, I, I work at Rockstar Games, so we do Grand Theft Auto and Red Dead and... and you do the thing. fucking yeah. games, right? They're the, the... The biggest games in the world. The biggest, the biggest absolutely bloody anything in the world. Is yeah, man, so, yeah, but me and yeah, you, we, we've, yeah. we've, 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 we've gone through Vice City. Like, you looked after <laughs> me as well. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. One day I was broke and didn't have anything, and next day there was like 10 million in my account, and I was like, fucking get them the man. <laughs> I bought myself a new mansion, I, I was all yeah. sorted. Yeah, we're not allowed to do that anymore. No, anyway. you're not. No, it didn't happen, but, but you were taking care of me anyway. At the moment, right, there's this vibe going around because PS5 is coming out and Xbox and there's yeah. a new generation of gaming. And I read some really interesting shit about the future of gaming and how, how therapeutic it could be for people or what the future is going to look like. Yeah? yeah. Now, I'm not talking about specifics of brands that you work with or anything like that, but, but do you... Do you do you have a vision where you'd like gaming to go? Do you, do you, how it can affect people? Um, yeah, I mean, I, th I, I mean, I, I, I believe fundamentally that games are the ultimate myth delivery system. And to me, 
we all live by myths. We all live by a certain myth. Most of us aren't aware of the myths we live by. Some of them are the societal myths. And by myth, I mean the stories. The structure of our society is a myth. Is, 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 is created by this sort of mythology. We all live as, as a part of that mythology. We have our own personal mythology, which is based from your, your parenting and your childhood and your trauma and your this and your that. Um, and there have been these sort of ancient stories that have lasted for thousands and thousands of years because they had the capacity to take us into this deeper, more spiritual part of ourselves. And when I got into games, when I got the job here and I started really getting back into games, I was like, oh God. So I've been, I've been, I've discovered this sort of men's work and, and my own, my own healing. And I was like, oh yeah, this is how we spread it to the world. This is, this is where we do it. Um, you know, maybe not be in the next five years, but it's going to, it's going to happen eventually because it's, it's because you can be the hero in your hero's journey. You can be. You can feel what it's like to be a god. You can feel what it's like to be all the parts of yourself that you want to explore. Um, and, you know, and, 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 and there's, there's fun to be had in games as well. So it's not like it's the only thing that's going to be, but I definitely think it's one aspect of, of, of what games can become. But I, you see, to... it's funny because I'm just trying to see how you, would, how you can dilute it down into every day, how you just get men to be vulnerable like that. I'm all right with that because I'm a softie and people know me and I don't give a fuck what I say. Do you get me? Yeah. I don't really, I, I've nothing to hide. All my fuck-ups have, they're my scars, man. They've defined me. They've, they've, they've made me who I am, you know? I'm, and yeah. I'm dealing with them. I'm not saying I've dealt with them all, but I'm dealing with most of them. But I know other people, and they're just, man, their definition of a man is fucking James Bond, man. They just want to be, like, good at poker, uh, you know, good with women, and, you know, <laughs> that's what they want, man. That, they don't, they want to be, they want to be cool. They want to be contained. They want to be strong. That's their definition of what strong is. Men, give yourself permission to be vulnerable. You'll be surprised. You'll be surprised what comes out of it. Be vulnerable to your women. Be vulnerable to your children. Be vulnerable to your friends. And, you know, know that it, that may make them really uncomfortable. Just be okay with that too. <laughs> My kids are really uncomfortable with how much shit I'm sharing with them. But no, there's... You know, someone said to me, oh, is there a, a women's version of All Kings? And every time they say it, I said no, because no one's created it yet. All Kings exists in New York because I said, I'm going to start All Kings in New York. Women, women share shit though, women talk, man, that's the difference. I, I don't know, I, this might be controversial as fuck, but I think women do an amazing job of holding other women down. I think it's not as straightforward as we might like to think. The whole fucking room agrees with you, as a woman, as go a on. Woman. As a Muslim woman, yeah. go on, go on, tell us what you think. You don't need to identify go on. as the Muslim woman. As a woman then, as a woman. Yeah, I think so. I think... Uh... A lot of women feel that they feel better about themselves by putting other people, other women down. That makes them feel a bit more superior or... Really? Yeah, I think so. You know so. You know so. I, had a, the, the, my, I, I remember a moment with my wife where she was really feeling her power. And she's a powerful, powerful, incredible woman. And she, she's always been a little afraid of it. She was stepping into her power. It was one of these moments. And we were at this party... And this woman looked at her sort of sideways and it was enough to shut it down. And there's this, I think the men get the same thing, women get the same thing that men get, which is you being your fullest powerful self makes me realise I'm not being my fullest powerful self. And I don't know how to be my fullest, fullest powerful self, so it's easier to pull you down than it is to work out a race. I just have to tell up. you something, right? My sister was going for a driving test last week. 
And I told her, and she hasn't fucking let up, right? I said, be you, but just be 20% less you, right? Because she, she, no, no, I was just saying, she, I said, you've got to act like, you know, just don't act too cocky. Like she's high-fiving the guy and telling him to hold on and just fucking chill out and just, like don't scare him off because she's a powerful woman. She's a powerful woman. And mm. I said, some men are ter- like, they just fucking terrified by that. But, but afterwards, when I thought about it, I thought that's bullshit advice, really, man. Telling her to be 20% yeah. less than who she is. See. She's dead right. Be fucking 110% percent she- 20% slower. Yeah, what? Just, can you act like someone who's, who didn't learn to drive in Cairo? Could you do that? Just, just for the sake of this dude. That's all I was suggesting, but she took it up the wrong way. But, but you be you. You be you, get the new be you, because you're a legend. And I love chatting to you. I could chat to you all the time. You're the man. Um, you know, you know, if you're ever looking for an actor in one of the games. Or a I'm, 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 I'm just saying, I'm just saying, me and John John, do, like some Irish gangster, you know what I mean? Whatever you need. Like, we do that shit, get them, get them, thanks a million, man. Isn't he awesome? There you go. It's okay for you to. When I said you're a Muslim woman, you were all like, don't identify me as a Muslim woman. When you're trying to sell your ass to get into a video game, you're all like, or a Muslim woman. Whatever. It look. It's it's it's. Um, I, I love that chat with Kathan. It's just listen. These are my thoughts and only my thoughts. Being vulnerable is terrifying, isn't it, John John? Yeah. Right. It is. Not. No one wants to be vulnerable, right? But. It's daring to come out from the shadows and show who you are and be seen. When I shut myself off from vulnerability, I I distance myself from the experiences that bring purpose and meaning to my life. I'm not bullshitting you. Vulnerability is the only authentic state. Being vulnerable, it means being open to getting hurt, but also for pleasure. Being open to the wounds of life means also being open to the, the true human experience. Vulnerability increases my sense of worthiness and authenticity. Thank you, John John. Authenticity. If you look at yourself or think about yourself and you feel like a fraud or a fake because you're too afraid to share or say certain things out loud about yourself, it will erode you. It's soul destroying. Vulnerability helps us feel close and connected to our partners and friends, yet achieve our own sense of identity, my real identity. It allows me to be open with my heart, to give and receive love fully, because it teaches me to feel and exude empathy. Fact. I don't have a mic, so I can't drop it. Thank you. Thank you. That don't. I think we've had meetings about this slow clapping. I find this stuff is important, and it's the reason that especially with male suicide and stuff like that out there but it's not just something that affects men it affects women and everyone else and you pass it on generationally you know you don't deal with stuff and you pass it on and then one person's stuff can just carry on for generations and generations so just don't do that be vulnerable it's all right um where am i now as usual you can share if you enjoyed this podcast we hope you did and um, you can share on social media we have uh, facebook and twitter and <laughs> and uh, and instagram at be a um anything else you can like it subscribe. you could could subscribe leave us a review all these things help us 
older episodes older episodes there's a really there's like there's a whole season there now you could listen back to you know if you haven't checked them out um they're all really interesting individually i think I would say that but um, yeah so listen until uh, until next time what can I say but uh, good luck in the cup <laughs> there you go <laughs> <laughs>